future generation acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. I've been really disappointed actually that it's become political. It shouldn't have been political. It should have been a unifying occasion, a logical step in reconciliation that's been worked on for the last couple of decades. That was Michael Cheney, one of the country's most successful business leaders and advocate for the voice to parliament. For the past three decades, Michael has dominated corporate Australia. As CEO of West Farmers, he grew the company's value from 1 billion to 10 billion and he's also chaired some of Australia's top-tier companies, such as National Australia Bank, Woodside Petroleum, and of course, West Farmers. More recently, however, Michael has turned his sights to other projects. In today's episode, he shares his thoughts on the voice, the state of politics in Australia, mining, and the environment. Thanks, Caroline. I'm going to start by asking you a question that we ask all of our guests. This podcast is called Twofold, because at Future Generation, our purpose is twofold. We want to get the best investment returns for our shareholders, and we also want to get the best social outcomes for young Australians. So, Michael, thank you very much for being here today. What are your two driving purposes in life? Well, uh, Caroline, it's, um, it's hard to think of two. I, I think I've only had one, really, and that was to make a difference. Um, to make a difference and perhaps here's the two, in my business life and to make a difference in my life outside business, you know, whether that's my personal life, my family life or in the community generally. Um, I think I've always had an ambition to use whatever skills and background and experience I've had uh, to make a difference in whatever I'm involved in. So that's very apt because Future Generation is all about making a difference. I really want to talk to you. I mean, you, you are, you're a businessman and obviously you've done a lot on the philanthropy space. But I want to talk to you about inflation because it's really dominating the news cycle. And everybody's thinking about it. Everybody's thinking about the cost of living and the crisis that we might be in now. So from your view, how much pain are we actually in now? And is it going to get worse? Well, could I start by saying uh, that in this discussion with you, Caroline, uh, any comment I make about forecasts or predictions should be treated with caution. Because um, one thing I've learned over my business life is that uh, no one can really forecast anything with any accuracy. But we all have our views, and, and if you look at inflation, for example, at the moment, the general view is that we've probably peaked, you know, whether it's in the US, in Europe, in Australia, uh, but that it, it's going to be hard to get back down to the, you know, 2% sort of level that uh, Federal Reserves and Reserve Banks want to get to. Uh, there's a fair bit of stickiness there, and we all know why inflation has occurred. It's supply chain shortages exacerbated by the situation in Ukraine. Um, and uh, recently we've had the oil producer saying they're going to put a floor under that. So I think it's going to be a while until it comes down and people generally think it'll be 2025 until we are getting into much lower levels. And how and how do you actually think the RBA is dealing with it? Like, could could they do more? What's your view on that? Well, I think they've been in a, in a very... Uh, 
difficult position, and I think they've done a good job in dealing with it. They've, they've used traditional methods, obviously raising interest rates as they felt they needed to, having a pause at the last meeting. Um, but it's always a balance between going too far with interest rate rises and sending the economy into a recession. And, and so far, uh, they've managed to raise interest rates in a way that uh, we still have an economy that's growing, albeit fairly slowly. And uh, But I do think uh, we've got a few rate rises ahead of us. I think you're right. I mean, that is the general consensus. So West Farmers, it's one of the country's biggest retailers. You own Bunnings, Kmart, Target, Officeworks, and until very recently, Coles. So what what is the impact of inflation being there? And, and what do you see as the outlook now for the retail sector more generally? Yeah. Well, it, the impact has been, as you would expect, it's been difficult to maintain margins. Uh, we've had inflation in, in uh, products that we import and are produced here. We've had inflation in wages. And we've uh, passed some of those increases on in our prices. One of the benefits we've had as a group is that our businesses like Kmart and Target are at the lower price end. And uh, as we anticipated, people are actually flocking to them and uh, moving away from higher price retail outlets. And so overall, uh, the effect on West Farmers hasn't been too dramatic. And so the retail sector at the moment is uh, operating in exactly the way we thought it would six months ago. I said to Rob Scott the other day, it's one of the few times in business where our predictions about what will happen in six or nine months have come true, that we're finding retail and generally at the consumer side is turning down. And I think that'll be quite difficult over the next six or 12 months. So let's continue with banks. I mean, you were chair of NAB during the financial crisis and you were there for, for 10 years. Um, so what do you see with everything that's happening in the US with the regional banks? What, what do you think? Are there going to be any sort of knock-on effects for Australian banks? Yeah, I mean, the hope is that the what might have been a banking crisis internationally uh, has been sorted. The American banks are doing their quarterly reporting now and, and reporting good profits on the whole. And uh, the smaller banks, a loss of deposits, it's in line with what people expected. Um, and, and so I think the effect of what's happened there will be fairly minimal, uh, but time will tell. That, that's, that's good to know. Um, let, let's look at building companies. There have been some recent collapses. And I, I would assume you keep a very close eye on that sector, especially as you have Blackwoods and Bunnings. You know, do you think there is more hardship in, in the building sector to come? I think there is. If, if you look at um, our Bunnings operations, the trade side of it is performing very well. Uh, and that means that there's still a reasonable build, building activity going on out there. But um, quite a few builders signed fixed uh, price contracts to build uh, houses, and they've been struggling a lot for the last couple of years. And, and so we've seen a number of them uh, fall over. When you see a company uh, uh, go into administration, a lot of people don't realise that it's actually been struggling for years. And, it, you know, people try and get their heads above water. The banks uh, help them along and, and are long-suffering and so on. But eventually they have to go to the wall. And I suspect there'll be a few more following. Um, but 
eventually will come out of this cycle where there's been supply shortages and cost increases. And if inflation has actually now peaked and we're seeing it come down, it'll make it easier for those who are on fixed price contracts. It's very difficult now to get a builder to commit to a fixed price contract and, and that'll help as we go forward if they're all cost plus. So West Farmers is one of the biggest employers in the country. You've got more than 100,000 staff. Presumably a lot of them are on the minimum wage. What, what's your view of the minimum wage and is it really adequate now with all of the cost of living increases? Well, if I could start with that last question, I'm sure it's very difficult. You know, for people on the minimum wage, with inflation the way it's gone, it's certainly uh, difficult and, and, and quite a struggle, I think, for a lot of people. Um, in terms of West Farmers, uh, we employ um, many people on um, workplace agreement, enterprise bargaining agreements and so on, which are usually based on awards and in almost all cases pay above the award. And if there are uh, wage increases coming through, minimum wage increases, they're reflected in the awards in most cases. And so um, most of our people are better off than that minimum wage that you mentioned. But where they are in those cases, uh, they, they get the indexation or the increases that, that flow through and as I said, I, I don't have any doubt that it's difficult living uh, on the minimum wage in the, in the current circumstances. So turning to a topic that is really in the news at the moment and one I believe is quite close to your heart, you've recently joined the Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition and you've been very vocal supporting The Voice. I'm really interested, why did you decide to do that and really what does The Voice mean to you? I must say, long lamented the situation facing a lot of Indigenous people in Australia. Uh, I've been out in remote regions and, and seen that for myself. I chair an education board in Canberra, and through that I've seen the absolutely terrible results, school, school results in remote and very remote Australia. And I think there has to be a better way. And I think the voice has the potential to make a difference. Um, uh, it, it, uh, if it is a proactive voice, I think we'll find people coming forward and saying, look, uh, there is a better way to do this. Why are we sticking with this uh, sort of centrally designed way, whether it's in education or health or social services? And uh, and so I happen to think the voice will, will make a difference. Uh, it is a very simple change to the constitution, a very modest change in my view, and uh, I'm confident that it will get up. If it were up to you, how would you actually bring more Australians along? Like how would you frame the referendum question? Well, the referendum questions which have now been uh, described by the Prime Minister uh, I think very sensible questions. There are, firstly, the question itself in the referendum is very simple. It's do you approve of recognising the first people and providing a voice? There, it's then backed up by what would go into the constitution, the three sentences, and they are very straightforward sentences that there will be a voice, it will be able to make representations to parliament and the executive government. And the third sentence gives parliament the absolute power to determine everything about the voice and that's something that's a bit overlooked and people who oppose it often throw out distracting sort of suggestions that ignore 
the power of those words in the third sentence. So you believe it should be a voice to the executive as well as to Parliament? Absolutely, because if it were a voice to Parliament only, it would be a reactive voice. That is, Parliament would, uh, and the government would draw up a bill, it would go to Parliament and the voice would then be able to comment on it. What it precludes is the voice being a very productive, proactive body. For example, remote and very remote education is in a terrible state. And I can imagine a voice coming to the government and saying, look, at the moment it's handled this way, why don't you try something totally different? Uh, a remote education commission or the whole situation out in remote, very remote areas is pretty diabolical partly because all arms of government are doing their own thing without communicating. Why don't we have a whole of government commission for remote areas? That's an example of where a voice could be proactive very usefully and make a difference. And if you just make it to parliament, that would never happen. So you believe that it shouldn't just be confined to um, matters that directly impact Indigenous people like land, education, health, you think it should be much broader? No, I do think it should be confined to matters that involve Indigenous people. In fact, the uh, if you, you look at the speeches in Parliament when these bills were introduced, that's certainly the intention of the government. It's uh, They've made representations on matters relating directly to Indigenous people or general matters where the effect on the Indigenous people was different to the effect on the general population. And so uh, any suggestion that the voice will be in there trying to get involved in everything from, you know, education to defence is just silly in my view and uh, it, it just wouldn't work. And by the way, if it did do that, the parliament of the day would change it. One of the, one of the issues people were asking for is more detail. Well, you have to realise constitutional changes and, and clauses never have detail. The detail of the voice will vary from this decade to the next decade to the next decade as the uh, requirements arise. I think that's, that is an interesting point and one perhaps I, I haven't seen that much on. So you're obviously talking to a lot of different people. You know, what are, what are some of the most common arguments that you're hearing? Well, the, the arguments, do you mean the arguments against? Yes. Well, the arguments against to me have been quite mischievous distractions. Uh, I mean, they started with it's a third chamber. Oh, well, everyone realises it's not a third chamber, so we'll now move on to we need more detail. Oh, well, detail's never in the referendum and it's up to the parliament. Parliament could legislate it now and they will legislate it as the decades go by. Ah, it's justiciable. That is, it'll tie up the courts. Well, then you get the Robert Frenchers and Brett Walkers and Justice Haynes and so on saying it's not. Oh, well, okay, we'll put that aside. It's uh, uh, how do you define an Aboriginal? Oh, well, there are three tests. Okay, fine. Oh, well, it's a Canberra voice. So uh, as each of these things, in my view, has been debunked, someone raises another objection. And I've, I've been really disappointed, actually, that it's become political. It shouldn't have been political. It should have been a unifying occasion 
a logical step in reconciliation that's been worked on for the last couple of decades. So do you, if First Nations people believe their voice is not being heard, should they have the right of appeal to the High Court? Well, no. The, the, as I mentioned earlier, the third sentence in what's proposed to go into the Constitution puts all the power about the makeup of the voice and the activities of the voice and every aspect of the voice with the Parliament. And under Section 1 of the Constitution, the country is governed by the Parliament, which comprises the sovereign House of Representatives and the Senate. That remains the case. And so the voice has no power to override anything, to veto anything. And uh, the, the makeup will be determined by the parliament. And if it became justiciable, if aspects were, the parliament, in my expectation, would change it. So, But in, in any event, the, the wise legal heads like Robert French et al. say that it's not justiciable in the uh, the form that is currently proposed. So you have committed um, West Farmers to advocating for The Voice. You know, what role do you think corporates should play in the campaign? Are well, they going too far? No, I mean, I think there's a very important role for corporates here. And, and if you look at West Farmers as, as an example, West Farmers has, from the outset, had a primary objective of providing satisfactory returns to shareholders. And uh, that's because if you buy a share in West Farmers, you, you buy it in West Farmers and not CBA or Westpac because you hope it'll do better financially. So that's our purpose. But we've always said we can't achieve that purpose in the long term unless we look after the interest of all stakeholders, employees, suppliers, customers, the environment, the community. And we don't see any conflict between looking after stakeholders and looking after shareholders. They really go hand in hand. So in West Farmers, if you look at employees, we employ 100,000 people, of whom 4,000 approximately are Indigenous people. We have suppliers who are Indigenous suppliers. Many of our customers are Indigenous people, whether it's in Bunnings or Kmart and Target and so on. We have international shareholders who are looking with great interest at this referendum and saying... um, and, and frankly, I think would throw their hands up if it were lost and wonder about Australia as a fair place. So if you think of all of those things, not supporting this referendum would be betrayal of all of those people I've mentioned, betrayal of our Indigenous employees and suppliers, and I think betrayal of the Australian people because we think this is a very important move, a uniting move in Australia, and it should be supported. I've been out talking to CEOs of other big companies and universally they have the same view. So it's not, it wouldn't be perceived as elitist interference? No, and I've, it's not at all elitist. In fact, this is a grassroots sort of campaign. Um, there, there's a heck of a lot going on in the ground and it's up to individual Australians to vote as they please. We would never argue uh, with that. It is uh, something, I think, for all Australians, individuals, organisations, companies and so on, to get behind. You mentioned that you employ 4,000 Indigenous people and I understand that you actually consult them to make sure that working conditions um, suit the local communities. I mean, that's a really interesting model. I mean, could could you explain a little bit more about that? Well, yes, we do. Um, I mean, let's face it, most of the Indigenous people 
we employ uh, are just like every other non-Indigenous person and come to work and, and do the same sort of job. But there are some cultural differences. And, and so when we, uh, we do two things really in this regard, when we are taking on Indigenous people, we, we have a, uh, a process where we sit down and talk to them and help them understand what the job involves and so on and to make sure it fits in with their own uh, practices and, and habits. But we also provide great flexibility. So if somebody, you know, has sorrow time, sorry time, for example, uh, then they can uh, take some time off. But we also uh, have uh, cultural education programs for our non-Indigenous workforce so that people they are working with, say in Bunnings or Kmart, understand some of the issues that might be different. Let's turn to Alice Springs and what's happening there at the moment for me is it's an absolute tragedy. You know, obviously, West Farmers has operations there. Do you have any ideas on what we could do better there? Well, I think it's a sort of microcosm of remote Australia and some of the issues that are there. Uh, in my view, it was a real mistake uh, lifting the restrictions on alcohol, and I think that's proven to be the case. Um, there were a lot of Indigenous people saying to government, don't lift them, and the government did for its own reasons, and, and I think the results speak for themselves. So I, I think th this is one place where I think the voice, which actually was seen as having a role, uh, could make a difference. You know, if the voice had existed and said to the government, uh, you've got this commitment coming up, we don't think it's a good idea, I think government might have taken a bit more notice of it than they did with the random sort of comments coming from the Indigenous community. So you, I've read that you had a stint in the Western Desert. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? But what did it actually teach you? Like, what did you bring back and how have you applied that? It taught me a few things. Yeah, I went out with my wife and actually my brother Fred had organised it because he's been involved up there and a few other senior corporate people. And we spent three or four nights out camping out in the Western Desert and looking at what uh, the local Matu people were doing in restoration of country. Quite a lot of them, of, of the, the men that were with us, had actually spent time in jail in the Pilbara. Uh, and we talked a bit of that and they were... Terrific people, you know, out there now doing, I think, really useful work. We talked about the the issue about going to jail. What what was happening in, and it's a great illustration actually of how a rule, in this case, made in Perth centrally, doesn't make much sense remotely. Uh, as you know, in order to drive a car, you need a driver's license, and you need literacy and so on to fill in forms. A number of quite a few Indigenous people ended up driving without licences and when they were caught were thrown into jail for three months and when they came out drove again and were thrown into jail for six months and they get into this cycle of, um, of, of imprisonment that really dictates the rest of their life. The magistrates that were involved up there just after I was there got together to talk about what sort of solutions there might be to this really quite odd problem. I mean, in, in Western Australia, you need to do 50 hours of supervised driving before you get your licence. It's practically impossible to do it. You don't have a high road toll, by the way, up there with people driving without a licence, and there's got to be better solutions. And I think it brought home to me 
a simple, without talking about solutions, the simple point that rules made in Canberra or in Perth or in Adelaide uh, that seem that are sensible for some parts of the population may not be for remote populations. And the education one I mentioned is a good example. And there must be a better way to do it. And for people who say, well, the voice won't make any difference, my, my answer is, well, what will? What do you suggest, uh, given that what's been done in the past is, on the whole, been pretty ineffective? Do you think Australia is a racist country? Uh, no, I don't. There are elements of racism, and we read about it, you know, lately uh, with someone shouting out at the football. But on the whole, I don't think Australians are racist. Australians, I think, are a, a, a real egalitarian uh, society. I think people, we don't have the sort of class structures that we've seen elsewhere. Um, in the first hundred years of Australian, uh, uh, since the constitution was formed, I think there was a fair bit of racism that diminished over time. And so in 1967, Indigenous people were actually able to be counted in the population. And so there's been an enlightenment, I think, over time. And today I wouldn't describe Australia as racist at all. So you've mentioned Fred, your brother, and obviously your father was also a minister in Liberal government. So you have this incredibly rich history with the Liberal Party. So what is your what is your sort of response to how the Liberal Party has responded to The Voice? And more generally, how, how do you think the Liberal Party are doing? Well, I've been very disappointed in their response to The Voice because I think they decided early on there is some political mileage to be made by opposing it when they should have embraced it. And, you know, we've had resignations from the party as a result by people who are highly regarded, I guess because they see the same thing. Um, it is a real shame, I think, and if the referendum were lost, I think it would be a real indictment, actually, of those who opposed it when they should have been on board. This brings us to your very successful daughter, Kate. She was one of the independent or teal MPs elected to Parliament last year. But what did you think of her decision to go into politics? And then tell me, what do you think is the state of politics at the moment in this country? Kate actually came and sat with me and Fred, my brother, and said, I'm thinking of, I've been asked, invited to stand. And both of us said, uh, we don't think it's a good idea. Uh, firstly, because the life of a politician, a federal politician from Perth is really difficult uh, with all the travel. And secondly, I said, you know, you've only got three months. This is one of the safest Liberal seats in Australia and your chances of winning at a uh, pretty low in my view. She went away and came back and said, well, uh, I've decided to accept the invitation. And she ended up with, I think, 860 volunteers who did a fantastic job and she won the seat. And she's very much enjoying it. I think she's enjoying being able to express in an independent view rather than a party view and has been very active in the, um, the electorate and in the parliament. Um, the Liberal Party has a real problem, and we've all read about that, and they've done their own reviews and so on. In West Australia, it's it's particularly acute because they hold two seats out of, I think, 56 in the state lower house. And um, the party there has been beset by all sorts of internal 
ructions over the years and accusations of branch stacking and so on. And it's very hard to recover from that sort of position. But as we've seen in Australia and in other countries, parties do recover from what seem like completely irretrievable positions, but it requires goodwill on people's part. Um, one of the challenges, I think, is getting membership. You know, generally, it doesn't appeal to people to join the Liberal Party and join a branch, get involved and so on. And it makes it easier for branch stackers to prevail. And, and that's something that's very difficult to overcome. So I think the party has real challenges going forward. I think you're right. There has been a huge change in the Australian political landscape. But one of the things I also want to talk to you about was ESG. In, in your opinion, do you, think, do you think things have gone too far? I don't really. I mean, ESG is obviously a bigger part of corporate life than it was, say, 30 years ago. Um, but if you look at, uh, if, uh, for a company like West Farmers, actually, it's nothing new. When we went public in 1984, our first annual report said on the inside cover, our principal objective, that is our purpose, is to provide a satisfactory return to shareholders. In doing this, we seek to look after shareholder, employees, suppliers, uh, customers, the environment. So ESG and all the rest of it is, that last bit is ESG. That's always been part of our DNA. Um, it's become more uh, emphasised in the markets over the last decade in particular, with different resolutions being put up at meetings and so on. But I think that's just part of the way the world has changed and it's something companies need to cope with. So you, I mean, 1987, That's I think that's when that when you made that statement. So you've sort of predated the current ESG revolution. Do you think we should be doing better, though? I think companies on the whole are doing very well. I mean, if you look at um, emissions reductions, companies have been well ahead of government policy for the last few years, or certainly over the last decade, and doing their own thing in terms of um, emissions reduction. And, you know, if you look at the Business Council, if you go back into, say, 2000, and my memory fails me, but 2006-07, I was president of the Business Council, and we supported the emissions reduction scheme uh, that the, uh, the Rudd government put forward. And the Business Council has always supported a carbon tax, called it an emissions reduction scheme or something else. Um, and so business on the whole has been on the front foot. It was, the justification really was the precautionary principle. That is, at that time, the science wasn't as well developed. But if what people are saying is true, there's a problem ahead of us, we better start taking action. And that's been the way business has approached it. What I'm interested in also is your view on mining. You know, I know that West Farmers is out of coal, but some investors completely avoid the industry. And yet it's an incredibly important part of our economy. So how should the West Australia be talking to the eastern states to make sure the mining industry is given the credit that it deserves? Well, well firstly, you can't have an energy transition without mining. You know, you have to mine uh, iron ore to make steel for wind turbines. Uh, you have to mine silica to produce um, solar panels. You've got to mine lithium for batteries and copper and so on. So mining 
uh, will play a big role in the transition. There's a fair bit of naivety really in the general public who've never been out to see a mine. And uh, I remember driving someone uh, through all the way from Perth to Broome through the Pilbara and seeing, you know, when you get to a mine, whether it's, you know, a Rio or a BHP iron ore mine, it's huge, or the super pit at Kalgoorlie, but it's an absolute fly speck on the landscape of Australia. You know, you drive for <laughs> 10 hours and see another mine, and people tend to sort of see a TV image of a mine and say it's devastating the landscape. Well, it's absolutely immaterial in the scheme of things. And so uh, all of those products are going to be needed. Mining is going to play a very important role in Australia's future. You've obviously sat on a lot of boards. I mean, you've been chair of many. How much of corporate life now is spent pandering to sort of an activist base? Uh, If I look at that from a board point of view, I would say 1%. A very, very small amount. Uh, Now, if you're in... If you're on the Woodside board at the moment, which I'm no longer, it'd be higher than 1% because they've got shareholder resolutions to consider and so on. But at West Farmers, um, we have a sustainability report, which is as big as our annual report, and that has to be reviewed by the board and gone through different drafts and so on. We have every meeting, safety statistics. So all of those things are part of the routine going to your point, responding to activists at a company like West Farmers is a very small part of business. So what do you say to people um, who believe that companies have no right to give away shareholder money to community causes or to take a stand on moral or social issues? Dealing with the first, uh, I, I mentioned earlier in this podcast that we don't believe it's possible to achieve long term superior shareholder returns without looking after the interests of all stakeholders. The duty in Australian law, the duty of directors is to look after the interests of the company. And if the directors believe that making any expenditure is in the interests of the company, they should do it. And making an expenditure on ESG sort of things or say making supporting a local ballet company or a local charity and so on, if they believe it's in the interest of the company to do that, they should do it. And we we believe it is necessary to do it because you earn your, your uh, licence to operate. We West Farmers, for example, is rated as one of the companies with the highest reputation in Australia. We don't think it's a coincidence that we've been one of the strongest financial performers. The two go hand in hand. If you're seen as an ethical company, a supporter of the community, customers want to shop with you, people want to work with you, other companies want a joint venture with you, all of those things are critical to achieving long-term shareholder returns. And similarly, with the, the social issues, I talked earlier about why it's so important for companies to be on board with the Yes campaign. Because uh, in that case, we've got so many vested interests around our group in employees, customers, suppliers, and so on, in the Indigenous space. And we feel it's very important to support support them. Thanks, staying on West Farmers, you know, 
as you said, you've had incredible growth um, over many years. Given its current size, can it actually sustain the growth? And and where is the next leg of growth coming? Is it is it pharmacies? Is it yeah. lithium? You know, is it how you use your data? If we look at the second part of your question, I wish I knew. <laughs> we all wish we knew what we'd look like in 10 years' time. I, I did an exercise for the board recently where I produced a pie chart to illustrate this point of the makeup of the group every at the end of every decade since we went public in 1984. And the pie charts are unrecognisable one decade to the next. So we were dominated by a fertiliser business when we went public that produced 50% of our profits. That same business today is 1%. And the reason uh, we've changed is that we've been driven by that single purpose statement about shareholder returns. That's allowed us to look at investments across the board and to take them where we felt a, they were ethical, but B, uh, they gave good returns. And so we've moved from being an agricultural company to at one stage dominated by coal mining and by retailing and supermarkets and now by Bunnings. And uh, we move, it's called logical incrementalism. We move as the opportunities present to either buy or sell businesses or expand them. And so in 10 years' time, we'll look different to what we do today, but none of us knows how. Let, let's turn to education. We've talked about education already, but obviously you were Chancellor of the University of Western Australia for, for more than 10 years. So when you look at society today, what worries you most about where we're trending? What worries me a lot at the moment is artificial intelligence. We have a director at West Farmers called Anil Sabahal, who's a senior Google executive. And he um, was talking to us at the last meeting about the current view amongst leading tech people around the world that ChatGPT or AI is the next platform. So, and, and the outcomes from it are totally unpredictable. So when the iPhone was released, no one knew that it would lead to apps no one knew it would lead to the decimation, really, of the camera industry. No one understood it would lead to social media with all the effects that it can have on children and teenagers and so on. And, and they think that AI is the same, but there are going to be all sorts of applications and developments that we can't currently understand. Now, the, those with an extreme view would say the worry is that eventually machines will be brighter than people and will take over and make their own decisions. And you get people like Elon Musk saying we should have a six-month pause, which is impractical, I think, because somebody will keep going. But I think if you think about the issues around today, social media and some of the, the negative effects of it, AI and what it can lead to in sort of uh, if you can imagine some things like um, a video that didn't actually exist of a prime minister saying something that is very looks very credible, um, I think we, we're in for a very uh, challenging sort of time. And, I, and I'd see AI is a, a huge issue uh, for the world generally. Let's turn to Jim Chalmers. 
He recently did an essay in the monthly about the need for values-based capitalism. And the government is targeting doubling of philanthropy by 2030. What role do you think Corporate Australia has to play in this? And um, are you going to make a submission to the Productivity Commission? Well, the, I think you know, I mentioned what role I think corporates have to play in, well, really in community support. They have an important role and it's in their own interest to do it. You know, the debate around this is mostly words at the moment. You know, we've moved into a, an environment now where there's general recognition of a need to uh, make sure we have wages growth uh, and that's been stalled. It's been stalled actually for many reasons outside the control of a country like Australia. But uh, th there's a growing understanding that we need wages growth, which is really challenged by the, uh, if you look at real wages growth, by the inflation situation and the outlook. We're not making a submission to the Productivity Commission on that. But I think the, the, the challenge for the government, if you go back to Jim Chalmers, the challenge for the government really is to grapple with the demographics of Australia and the effect that has on fiscal uh, deficits and the need really for wholesale tax reform, not just fiddling around the edges. And so I see things like the, uh, you know, changes to superannuation tax, and, uh, and and so on, and the, the question of the, the third wave of changes to personal income tax as very minor things in the scheme. And we need to sit back and have a look at the whole system as Ken Henry did, maybe pick up Ken's report, update it and say, we're a brave government. We're actually gonna propose a revolutionary change in the way taxation is applied in Australia, because if we don't, we're going to end up like a third world economy in 20 or 30 years with the ageing that we've got and things like the NDIS and, and the demands of a, an older population. So your brother, Fred, we've talked about him, he excelled in politics. You obviously have excelled in business. You know, could it have been the other way around? It could have been, I think, but uh, I don't think that it would have been a good outcome because Fred by for nature. business or for politics? Fred, <laughs> <laughs> by nature, is much more interested in policy than I am, and I'm much more interested in business. Um, and I've found business uh, and trying to make a difference really fulfilling personally. And I think he's found politics fulfilling, although politics is a lot more frustrating than business. In comparison, business is really straightforward. So what are you what are you going to do next? Well, I'm getting on now, and so <laughs> I'll eventually retire. I'm involved on four boards today, the West Farmers and Northern Star Resources, the Australians for Indigenous Constitutional Recognition, and the National Schools Resourcing Board. Uh, I'll finish up the, the last one there this year. Uh, the AICR one will finish up this year, and I'll finish up my terms on those two listed companies in a few years' time. So after that, I'll be retired and I'll be too old to uh, be working. You'll be doing a lot of woodwork. I'll be doing a lot of woodwork and probably more travel and looking after 13 grandchildren and, <laughs> and uh, all the family. Well, not looking after them, but spending time with them. Which is a wonderful place to be. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. So thank you, Michael. Thanks, Caroline.
We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those that are interested in future generation, we are Australia's first listed investment companies to provide investment and social returns. We offer a unique opportunity for shareholders to invest with leading Australian global fund managers while supporting high impact, youth focused, not for profit organisations. Today, the companies have more than 1 billion in assets, managed by over 30 leading Australian and global fund managers. These fund managers generously manage our funds pro bono and don't charge management or performance fees. This then allows us to give 1% of our net tangible assets each year to carefully selected not-for-profit organisations. So far, the future generation companies have given 65.2 million, making us Australia's top 30 corporate philanthropists. This has been made possible through the expertise and generosity of the future generation pro bono fund managers, service providers, board directors and investment committee members, all of whom waive their usual professional fees. For more information about Future Generation, please go to www.futuregeninvest.com.au.